0: Hello and welcome to Stories from the Door, a collection of some of our favorite stories from the pages of Door County Living Magazine. Today we have a collection of stories that will take you from the bar to the bottom of Lake Michigan and inside the shipwrecks along the peninsula's coast, to the 1860s and the Civil War and the tales that came from Wildcat Joe Martin. Some true, others not so true. All that and more coming up on Stories from the Door. These stories and more can be found on the pages of Door County Living magazine or online in the Door County Living archives on doorcountypulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Door County news, exclusive one-on-one interviews, and more from the Peninsula Pulse.
1: Door County Living presented Door County writer Sharon Auberly with the challenge a writing exercise of sorts, choose a painting by Door County artist Pam Murphy and pen a story inspired by the piece. We went to the beach at Coronado Island last summer, my mom, grandma, and me. My name is Violet. The first day we got there, Mimi and I took a walk by ourselves beside the ocean. Mimi is my grandma, and she knows lots of cool stuff, like how starfish are really animals of some sort. And did you know if one of their arms get chopped off, they can grow a new one? And she told me that sand dollars are animals too, sort of like starfish cousins. I really liked the part about if you break open a sand dollar, birds will fly out, doves of peace or something like that. Mimi says that's called a legend, so it might or might not be true, but she likes to believe things like that. She told me about another legend in Japan, where people believe if you fold 1,000 paper cranes, you will be granted a wish by a real, live crane. So I started doing that when I got home, and now I have 49 cranes. It was hard at first, but Mimi taught me how. And she's helping me because she's worried about my uncle, who is her son, and he's in the army. I think about him, too, because I love him and I want him to come home again. And that is what I will ask from the crane after Mimi and I have folded 1,000 of them. Mimi's a poet. And she says poets are people who want to make the world a better place. And she will ask her crane for peace. Because she worries about my brothers, too, even though they're little. And she also worries about all the little boys and girls in the world. That so many of them will have to keep fighting these bad wars forever. I think poets like funny things. Like Mimi got all excited when we saw dolphins out in the waves. A whole bunch of them, and they were sort of leaping through the air while the sun was going down behind all these pink and orange clouds. She says there are whales out there too, and it makes her really, really happy to see one. I liked this jellyfish that was lying on the beach because it was all purple and jiggly and you could see right through it. Even though it smelled bad, Mimi took a picture of it. She's always taking pictures of stuff, like the tiny brown fish swimming beneath the rock I sat on, and the moss that waves underwater like green ribbons. The water was crystal clear in our little pool for a while. Then waves would rush in, stirring up sand, and it would be all brown and cloudy. The water was crystal clear in our little pool for a while. Then waves would rush in, stirring up sand, and it would be all brown and cloudy. Then they'd rush back out, and little gold specks would be left behind, shining in the sun. Mimi said this was something called a metaphor for life. Sometimes I have no idea what she's talking about. And she writes lots of things, like how good it feels to eat candy bars that melt all over our hands and faces, and how some kites flying way up high looked like dragons dancing in the sky, how funny pelicans are when they land, how the sun was shining on the windows of this big old hotel on the beach. Mimi said it's called the Dell, And they made a movie there once that had Marilyn Monroe in it, but I never heard of her, so I didn't care. She also said there are ghosts that hang out in the towers. That was kind of scary, so I held her hand for a while. Mimi asks me lots of questions and scribbles the answers in this orange notebook she carries. Orange is her favorite color. Once she asked me what my favorite color was, and I said chocolate. She wrote that down. Mimi is my dad's mom. And while we were walking on the beach one night, she asked me what I liked best about my dad. And I just said that I love him and he loves me. And then I think she got something in her eye because she got all teary and had to blow her nose, except she didn't have a Kleenex. She never does. So we had to go up to the Dell and find a napkin. And then we got ice cream. And it was chocolate and really, really good. That was Through Violet's Eyes by Sharon Auberly.
0: Here comes Joe Marden to mend your wares that are war. He'll fix one hole and nothing flat and put in a couple more. Door County newspaper editors of the late 19th century and early 20th centuries loved sharing stories of a man by the name of Joe Marden. He was also known as Wildcat Joe Marden and the Sage of the Shivering Sands. That little ditty before relates to Marden's trade as a tinker, someone who repairs metal utensils. Among other things, Martin presented himself as a Civil War veteran, which is a bit of a stretch. In the official roster of the 52nd Wisconsin Regiment Infantry, 30-year-old Martin is listed as joining Company D on April 10, 1865, which is the day after Lee surrendered. Martin and that entire regiment were mustered out on July 28, 1865, but that didn't stop him from sharing war stories or as Door County historian Halmar Holland wrote in his 1917 History of Door County in a chapter called The Sage of the Shivering Sands, Old Joe was a veteran of the Civil War and was rather vain of his exploits, some real and some imaginary. It seems they were all imaginary. He and his colleagues in the 52nd were sent to St. Louis, Missouri to guard workers on the Pacific Railroad. Martin was born in Maine in 1835. What brought him to Wisconsin is lost, as is how he ended up in Door County. When he died in 1909, his obituary in the Door County Democrat said, he is one of the oddest characters ever known as evidenced by all who ever met him. The late Orb Schaff was so taken with the life of Joe Marden that he compiled tales and newspaper accounts in a publication from the Door County Historical Society called Joe Marden: Thinker, Tinker, and Stinker, The Sage of the Shivering Sands. In his introduction, Schaff writes, "Any history of Door County would be incomplete if it didn't include Wildcat Joe Martin." Schaff writes that he first heard of Wildcat Joe's stories from his father, John Schaff, and later from his father-in-law, Clarence Tweedale. He notes that both men were 10 years old when Martin died, but he surely left an impression on their minds. Many of the accounts in Schaff's Martin collection come from the Door County Advocate. Schaff explains in the introduction that Martin and then-editor Frank Long were friends. The Tinker part of the book title has already been explained. Thinker becomes apparent when reading through the short pieces published about the man. An item in the August 29, 1891 Advocate states that Martin has purchased a tract of university land from the state and built himself a house thereon proprietary to opening a summer resort or something of the kind. And then we jump to a December 2, 1905 account. Joe Martin has improved his premises at Shivering Sands sufficiently of late, that he expects to entertain summer guests next season. Martin was of the opinion that Door County could become a first-class resort area, and he planned to be a resort owner. The rough wood building that was to be his resort, built of found lumber washed up on shore, was dubbed Castle Romance. He was filled with get-rich schemes that the editors of the day were happy to publicize, often as front-page news. In a September 5th, 1891 item, he planned to create a harbor and a breakwater with a helpful congressional appropriation to pay for the work. That would eventually lead to a line of steamers. Two years later, Martin was still spinning tails of a harbor, but not everyone was swallowing it. Suffice it to say that Joe has got the thing all laid out in his mind, the advocate stated in a tidbit from November 4th, 1893. By 1900, according to an Advocate article, Martin's plans had advanced to include draining Mud Lake in order to build a canal from Lake Michigan, a 60-foot-wide boulevard and a grand hotel with at least 500 rooms. In 1894, Martin was entering the cedar shingle business. That same year, he planned to take two specimens of what he pronounces as being the genuine American tiger cat on tour, about which the Advocate wrote, if Joe does not slip up on his calculation he will be fairly lousy with shekels by the end of the season. Later that year, he turned to the evergreen trade and then in early 1895 announced that he was going to raise moles and he claims there is thousands in it. A September 24, 1898 report finds Martin in possession of an educated duck that would dive for coins. The piece continues by saying he is also engaged in teaching a pig to play the violin and walk with a slack wire. That same year, he was reportedly going into the production of honey on an extensive scale. August 9, 1902, reports in both The Advocate and The Democrat announced that Martin had discovered diamonds in a small lake, proclaiming it a larger diamond field than those in Australia or Brazil. He says his fortune is made and that he will retire from the active pursuit of polecats and other fur-bearing animals. He said that he would use the proceeds from the diamonds to begin gold mining, which ore he claims is plentiful near shivering sands. Regarding the polecats, also known as skunks, we find an explanation for the stinker in the title. In addition to capturing skunks, Martin was also said to grease his long hair with skunk fat, which left him, one can only imagine, with a nose-burning Pepe Le Pew aroma. He reportedly attempted to ship some skunks to the Columbian Exposition, or the Chicago World's Fair, in 1893, but the skunks objected to heavy seas in the stinky manner to which they are predisposed, and the ship's captain ordered them to be thrown overboard. Schaff's collection of Martin stories and his own observations make for an entertaining read about a colorful character from the county's past. Or, as Schaff writes, a person needs a positive attitude, and Joe wasn't any exception. If there would have been a contest for thinking and dreaming, Joe would have won it by a landslide. That was The Sage of Shivering Sands, written by Jim Lundstrom for Door County Living, July 9th, 2019.
2: You don't get fired or quit from the Bayside. Your shifts just get further apart, said a bartender in the midst of a long break in the 1980s. In a way, that simple phrase encapsulates so much of what makes the Bayside Tavern such a staple at Fish Creek. It refers to a phenomenon common to Door County restaurants where getting fired or quitting never has the ring of finality that it does in other professions or other towns. Often, it doesn't last through the end of the day or even a shift. People's mistakes are forgiven, feelings mend, and sometimes out of mutual necessity, a bartender who left dramatically will find herself slinging drinks to thirsty patrons again when a holiday rolls around, the bar is short-staffed, or she's short on cash. In a small town, you can't be too picky about your staff, and the same goes for your customers. The Bayside welcomes them all. The yachties and the tradesmen, the esteemed of Cottage Row and the hippies of Camp David, the pastel boat shoes and the muddied work boots. Young, bronze, 21-year-olds in the awe of their first nights of Door County's summer bar scene and old gray beards not impressed with this new crop of newbies or the 35 incarnations that came before them. Here they sit elbow to elbow, the ledge of the bar, the great equalizer in a town where it's the only one that waits for them all winter long. Some have been kicked out for life before, but have eased their way back in. Many have quirks, some endearing, some unnerving all accepted by a cast of barkeeps that have changed in name, if not in ethic, through the years. Digger, Billy, Christy, Smilin', Richie, Scotty, DJ, Stoner, Brandon, Leif, Stevie, Bill. We get all the people before the town meetings, after the meetings, said Brandon Fabry, a veteran in his 13th Bayside season. If something happened in town, they come down and ask us what's going on. When we have thunderstorms and the power goes out, we stay open for the town. As a local in the winter, you know you're going to run into somebody to hang out with, longtime bartender Kathy Fald said. It's sort of the lowest common denominator. The $8 an hour guy can end up in conversation with the millionaire walking off his yacht. But come high season, many locals make themselves scarce. They avoid the crowds and you won't see them for the summer, Fald said. They'll walk by, peek in the window, see all the people and keep going. They like it when they have your full attention. While there are many bars on the peninsula in which everyone will know your name, it's the Bayside that feels most like Cheers, the bar from the 1980s television show of the same name. Dark, no matter how blue the sky, warm, no matter how cold outside. The Bayside is a living room, the stools made for comfort. Husby's is more of a sports bar. The Bayside has always been more of a sit-down-and-drink kind of bar, said Fabry, who served a healthy stint at Husby's before joining the Bayside crew. He doesn't mean that to imply it's a bar full of drunkards. It's actually a pretty casual scene nowadays, more vacation drinkers and eaters than anything else, but rather that if sitting down and drinking is your thing, the Bayside is a pretty good place to do it. For 40 years, the McDonald clan has kept the place humming. Elaine and Bob McDonald brought their family here in 1975, taking over what was once Bill's bar, making incremental changes through the years that would get little notice in many worlds, but which are a big deal to the regulars of a bar. A quarter increase in the price of a Bud Light might send timbers flaring, or the removal of the pool table, or the color of the paint on the wall. Cooney Fish says the same, however, a watchful eye over an evolving scene. The Bayside would make a fascinating case study in a business school. For years at a time, it has functioned with a nominal manager, or none at all. Yes, Elaine is always around, watching over everything and making the final call, but the bartenders make the schedule and make the place hum day after day. Elaine and Bob set the rules, Fabry said, but to an extent, the place just kind of runs. Over the years, employees have taught each other how to do it. It helps that we pretty much maintain the schedule for everyone, to the point that for a while we didn't even write a schedule. Fald said there has always been a method to the madness. Basically, whoever the longest tenured bartender on duty was functioned as the manager, she said. I always looked at it like I'm a subcontractor for the place. Whoever was closing the joint down was responsible for whatever happened. They're the ones getting the call in the morning if the work's not done. From the late 80s and through the 90s, the Bayside's calling card was live music. Bands on Saturday nights packed the place to the point that people went next door to the c and club just to get some air. On Mondays, bands from Milwaukee, Madison... Our local favorites, Big Mouth, would pack it as well, but with a completely different crowd. Monday was the industry, Saturday night, when all the cooks and servers from Northern Door took over the bar, emptying wells and filling tip jars. And then there was the Groove King, who cooked during the day, sipped Jim Beam in the evening, and rolled his keyboard at night for open mics or shows of his own. But the live music game is boom or bust in a bar, often more bust than patrons realize. And over the years, Elaine tired of that racket. Too many headaches, too little payoff, too much drama. The crowds are different today, too. The CNC is gone, and with it, the two-bar draw that kept people partying in Fish Creek all night long. Also gone are the hordes of college kids and local kids returning to work for the summers. Many replaced by workers from abroad who are much smarter about saving the money they make working doubles and triples all summer long. The kids used to work all day, then come into the Bayside and spend everything they made, Fald said. We would have to throw a huge crowd out of here at closing time on a Saturday, and even on weeknights. Now, the bars clear out at 1.30 a.m. most of the time. People are just more conscious of how stupid drunk driving is, Fabry said. Everyone knows someone who has a DUI. We rarely have to kick a ton of people out at 2 a.m., and those we do are usually walking. But the Bayside is packed with diners and drinkers all summer long, and for thousands of local tourists, the Bayside is Door County. A lot of people, when they come up on vacation or for the weekend, they'll stop here before they even go to their house or motel, Fabry said. And come winter, the locals return, their stools not given room to breathe. Like many businesses, the Bayside operates at a loss on many winter days, and the income of the servers dwindles to half or less of the peak summer shifts. But Elaine keeps it open in part as a service to the community, providing a place to go, a warm stool, a living room. You learn in Door County, you gotta go through a recession every winter, Fald said. But the beautiful thing about Door County and the Bayside is, you know the people are coming back every summer. And the people know the Bayside will be there too. Maybe a little different, maybe with a new face behind the bar, but the door will be open. Cooney Fish will watch from the wall, and somewhere inside a familiar face will say hello. The Bayside Tavern, Door County's Greatest Equalizer, written by Miles Danhausen Jr. in 2015.
3: Mention archaeology in Door County, and people will likely envision dusty excavations in an Egyptian pyramid. But there's plenty of action much closer to home, right offshore, in fact, beneath the waters that surround us. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the Great Lakes were teeming with sail and steam-powered ships, and hundreds of them went down near Door County. Between 1851 and 1901, 42 ships sank and many more were stranded along the 18 miles of coastline from North Bay to Jacksonport. Bailey's Harbor's Rocky Auto Reef was the site of the sinking or stranding of 20 of them. Over the years, much of the wreckage has drifted from its original location and, in many cases, sunk deep into Lake Michigan's sandy bottom, But the cold, fresh water is ideal for preserving artifacts. In many cases, the wrecks were in shallow waters so close to shore that the curious could examine them from rowboats and take away as souvenirs anything that wasn't, quite literally, nailed down. Prior to the passage of the Abandoned Shipwreck Act of 1987, it was not illegal to remove artifacts from the wreckage. For example, in the early 1960s, Bob Brandriff of Bailey's Harbor owned the dive shack next door to Husby's in Sister Bay. An avid diver, he brought up several major finds, including a large anchor believed to be from the schooner Peoria that sank in 1901 in Baileys Harbor. A crowd of several hundred people, some of them claiming the anchor should remain in Baileys Harbor, was dispersed by Sheriff Holis Breidenhagen. Brandreff notes that, at the time, when a qualified salvager put a buoy on a ship or object, it was a legal claim, like a mining claim. A fluke of the anchor had been spotted a few days earlier by teenage Chuck Brand, who was swimming in the harbor about 200 yards from Nelson's hardware store. The anchor ended up at the Sturgeon Bay Yacht Club. A 12-foot windlass recovered the same summer, and 50 feet of water near the sister island was donated to the Manitowoc Maritime Museum. Now that Sturgeon Bay has a maritime museum, Brandriff wishes he could bring it back. Since 1987, Wisconsin's historic shipwrecks are held in trust by the state. The Wisconsin Historical Society and the University of Wisconsin Sea Grant Institute are dedicated to preserving historic shipwrecks and facilitate responsible diver access. Removing or defacing artifacts is punishable by fines up to $5,000. The motto is take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but bubbles. Jake Grancy of Sister Bay grew up working on fishing charters in Bailey's Harbor. Captain William Shastel, the owner of On the Rock's Dive Shop, drew a map to help him and his buddies find and snorkel some of the shallow water wrecks when they were about 12. Jake, was always fascinated with them, although he didn't know the names of the ships or their history. He and his friend, Top Helene, earned their scuba certification on a trip to Florida in 1988. They were 14 and 15, respectively. Now, Grancy is the owner of Darkside scuba diving business, specializing in the dives on local shipwrecks. New customers make up about half of his business, while the rest come back year after year. Since the 1980s and 90s, Grancy says, diving has become more affordable. In the early days, most people, like those who first experienced saltwater diving on honeymoons in Mexico or the Bahamas, were just interested in recreational diving. As equipment has improved, divers have become more technically oriented and more interested in looking at shipwrecks, with Bailey's Harbor as a prime site. The Frank O'Connor is a great first dive, Grancy says. At 65 feet, it's not too deep and not too far away from shore. It's also one of the best preserved wrecks, even though it burned to the waterline. The propulsion gear The 20-foot steam engine, 12-foot propeller, and twin scotch boilers is intact and upright. And the bow section holds two anchors, chain, and the windlass. The ship is pretty flat through the midsection due to the fire that caused it to sink and subsequent salvage efforts. The Windsor, a schooner that sank near Cana Island in the fall of 1893, was discovered 50 to 60 years ago, but has since been lost again. Grancy says it will make an excellent second dive for his customers when it is relocated. Exciting discoveries are still possible. The Australasia that sank close to Whitefish Dunes in 1896 was featured in the Peninsula Paul story this past summer. It was found by two jet skiers. Many artifacts are still on site, and divers have set them where they can easily be seen by others. And then there's the elusive F.J. King, a 140-foot schooner that sprang a leak and sank in a storm on September 15, 1886, three miles off of Raleigh's Bay. She went down in 25 fathoms of water. 150 feet, and hasn't been seen ever since. The group that rediscovered the Frank O'Connor in 1990 was searching for the king, and with good reason. The Green Bay Scuba Club has a standing $1,000 reward for the person who finally locates the wreckage of the ship. A group searching for a fortune in gold, rumored to have sunk near Poverty Island, announced last summer that they had found the Griffin, a boat built by LaSalle and sank in 1679, reportedly off the tip of the Door Peninsula. Lots of people through the years have claimed to have found the ship. If this group has really done it, Gransey says, it will probably be made public in 2013. Thanks to new business in Bailey's Harbor in 2012, you don't have to get wet to view some of the shallow water wrecks. Like Gransey, Todd Haleen grew up here and began crewing for his dad's charter fishing business when he was 10. And like Granzi, he turned his childhood passion into a business. Licensed at 18, he now owns Lakeshore Adventures that offers fishing expeditions along with kayaking and snorkeling tours. Because he's always been fascinated with shipwrecks, Helene hoped to purchase a large clear-bottom boat that would let people view the wrecks from a dry sea. Finding that too expensive, he bought a dozen clear-bottom kayaks last summer and offered tours from Anclam Beach, Cana Island, and Cave Point. They proved so popular that additional kayaks were ordered before the summer was over. Helene expects the 2013 season will be even busier. Lakeshore Adventures also offers snorkeling tours around the shallow wrecks, with experienced guides and all the necessary equipment. Members of the Green Bay Scuba Club come up periodically to introduce people to scuba diving with classroom and in-water training. Helene says it's the first time this has been available in Door County. Not all the investigation of the area's underwater history is for personal entertainment, though. Last summer, Russell Leitz... A retired teacher who began to dive in 1992 presented a program to the Bailey's Harbor Historical Society about the work a group of divers authorized by the Wisconsin Underwater Archaeology Association has done in Bailey's Harbor. It began in 2003, and for the past several years, there has been two organized dives a year. They are documenting 14 wrecks, and parts from a 15th unidentified wreck may also be involved. For three days last June, 12 divers worked wreck sites, making scale drawings underwater on two-sided slates with Mylar pages and transferring their work each evening to a more comprehensive site plan. 19 pieces, the smallest 14 feet square, have been identified. It's like a jigsaw, Leet says, and much of our work is the process of elimination, figuring out by the size of a piece or the kind of metal fastener attached what ship it might have come from. It's a good thing I've always enjoyed puzzles because that's exactly what we're working with here. Eventually, the results of the Bailey's Harbor project will be published by Leeds. In the meantime, you can get more information about the underwater archaeology of Bailey's Harbor from a video of his talk on YouTube. Search for Bailey's Harbor Shipwreck. Asked why Bailey's Harbor is such a favorite spot for shipwreck exploration, Leeds points out that the cold freshwater and sandy lakebed are ideal for preserving wooden ships. Matt Carter, a professional diver and underwater archaeologist from New Zealand, came here on a Rolex grant, Leeds says. Before this, he had only made dives in the ocean where wood is destroyed. When he dove the 117-foot side piece in Bailey's Harbor, he says that it was the most complete piece of wreckage he had ever seen. Leese believes there is no other place in Wisconsin waters that has, in a relatively small area of shallow protective waters, the varied structures shown in the pieces of wreckage here. That was Where the Underwater Treasures Lie, written by Patty Williamson for Door County Living on November 15th, 2012.
0: For more Door County news, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse and Door County Living magazine, check us out at doorcountypulse.com, or pick up this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse Podcast to get new episodes delivered straight to your device twice a week. Thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse Podcast.